We are, we are glad that you are here. If you have your Bibles, please open to Philippians chapter 1 as we continue our sermon series, To Live as Christ. If you notice all of our songs, all of what we are doing, we are trying to focus on Jesus, who is our hope, our Messiah, and our Lord. And so this morning, as we look at Philippians 1 through 27, my title this morning is Citizens Worthy of the Gospel. Citizens Worthy of the Gospel. Now, as I begin, I want to begin with a story about redwood trees. For those that have been out west, you might have been in the redwood forest, and you've noticed that these are glorious and majestic trees. Well, there's something you need to know about redwood trees. According to researchers, quote, the interesting thing about the redwood tree is that their root system is intertwined with other redwood trees, literally holding each other up. The trees grow very close together and are dependent on each other for nutrients as well. Only redwood trees have the strength and the ability to support other redwood trees. Now, they can stand together because they can stand tall because they stand together. That's the that is the illustration of the redwood tree. The reason redwood trees can stand tall is because they stand together. They are united in their purpose to help each other become what God intended for them to be, namely the tallest and most majestic trees in the world. Now, everything in our text today is about standing firm and standing tall and standing united together as God's people. And so Paul is going to lay out for the Philippians in these verses how they are to remain united together, striving towards the same goal and same purpose. And they do this by living as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. So look at Philippians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 27 through the end of the chapter. It says there, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. So I want to begin this morning, before we jump into the outline, with the dominant idea of the text. For those that like to underline or take notes, this is what, this is what the main idea of the text is, is verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is the key verse of this text. I want to point out several things here. First, notice the emphasis on the word only. Only. Paul says this is to be our only aim, whether Paul is released from prison and whether he can come visit you or not, our only aim is to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now this is what it means that at its core... At its core, this is what it means to function as a New Testament church. 
our entire existence as individuals who are believers and as a corporate body, our entire existence is to be lived in light of the gospel that we have received. Hear me. Think about it just for a second. Only Christ Jesus, only Christ Jesus is of infinite value and worth. Therefore, living for Him is the only rational response to His infinite glory and worth. Whom, to whom else should you be living? Who else is of greater worth and value than Christ Jesus? So, we are to only live as though Jesus is the supreme treasure of our lives. This is Paul's goal for the church at Philippi. So notice the word only. Second, notice the word life. Only let your manner of life. Now the word life here is the word citizen. That's where I'm getting it from my title. It's the word citizen. It's the Greek word politomai. It's where we get the word politics. It's also where we get the word citizen. Alright, so he's saying here, that we are to live our lives as citizens worthy of the gospel. Now, Gordon Fee explains this, the famous New Testament scholar. Gordon Fee says this, quote, Paul now uses this verb not meaning live as citizens of Rome, although that's not irrelevant, but rather live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly home place. Hear me. Paul over in Philippians, later in Philippians chapter 3 is going to say, your citizenship is in heaven. The same word. This is the point. Just as Philippi is a colony of Rome, so the church is a colony of heaven in Philippi. We are a colony of heaven here in Huntingdon, Tennessee. And so what we are to do, our purpose as believers is to live as heaven's citizens here. We are to live as heaven's citizens here in Huntingdon, or the Philippians in, in their place in Philippi. They are a colony of heaven. Only let your manner of life, as you walk about the city, as you engage in your affairs, as you engage in the economy, as you engage in interpersonal relationships, you do it not primarily as a citizen of the United States, as important as that is, but as a citizen of heaven. So notice third, that we are to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this is the gospel that we have received and from which our citizenship has been granted, right? So Paul has already written about the Philippians. He's used the word gospel so many times already. Back in verse 4, he talks about their partnership in the gospel. In verse 7, the confirmation and defense of the gospel. And in verse 12, the advancement and progress of the gospel. And so this whole section of Philippians, hear me, this whole section of Philippians is about our responsibility to make the gospel look beautiful to those around us. We are to adorn the gospel by our conduct one with another and with a watching world. This means that our responsibility is to make the gospel look like what it really is. That it really is the power of God to save us from our sin. It really is the power of God to save us from the pollution and corruption of our sin. And it really is the power of God to save us from who we really are apart from Jesus. Now, 
our conduct must be in line with the gospel of grace that we have received. So hear me, this is what it means. We make the gospel, again, look beautiful to the world around us. We walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So our conduct must be in line with our King, Jesus, and His kingdom to which we belong. And now, from this point forward, this is all introduction, ready? Y'all are about to get a lot of sermon after this. Are you excited? All right. So from this point forward, Paul is going to tell us how do you do that? How do we live as citizens worthy of the gospel? That's the question we're going to be answering. And so it's important that we have to do this not only in front of a watching world, but in front of a world that is almost always hostile and antagonistic to Christ. So let's break the text up. I have six points. Y'all love it when I have six points. You're like, Pastor, that's two sermons worth. You're the limit of three but I'm going to give you six, but I promise to move quickly. So here's the question we're answering. How do we live as citizens worthy of the gospel according to Paul? First, he says, you have to walk in unity of spirit. To live as citizens worthy of the gospel, you have to, live, you have to walk in unity of spirit. Look at verse 27 and what he says. He says there, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit standing firm in one spirit now I take this to be a reference to the Holy Spirit now I do that because Paul has just mentioned the Holy Spirit back in verse 19 and he uses the same phrase standing firm in the Lord in Philippians 4 to refer to Jesus so that's just me saying that it's natural here for us to read that this is the Holy Spirit I'll remind you that as you read through the New Testament it is abundantly clear that it is God the Father who has planned and orchestrated and is the grand architect of our salvation. It is the Father who planned our salvation. It is the Son who has come to accomplish our salvation. Jesus has done everything we need to be right with God. But it is the Spirit. It is the Spirit who applies Christ's work to us. It is the Spirit who now fills us and empowers us to stand firm in Christ in the face of opposition and persecution. We are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And as believers, if you read through the New Testament, we are called to have an intimate relationship with God's Spirit where we yield to the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit, we keep in step with the Spirit, we allow the Spirit to produce fruit in us, and it is now the Spirit who unites us together with Christ. We have to maintain unity of the Spirit. Every person who has come to Jesus by faith has been filled with God's Spirit, and we have a responsibility to walk together, empowered by the Spirit, accomplishing God's purposes. That's the first thing. Second, we have to have unity of mind. Notice what he says there. He says, standing firm in one spirit, and then he says, I've got to find my place again, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Now the word here is the word, the Greek word psyche. See, it's scary. <laughs> scary when I say things and that happens, right? So, just calm down. Whew, that scared me. All right, so let's maintain the unity here, okay? Um, so, 
Paul says we have to maintain one mind. All right, The Greek word there is psyche, which is usually translated soul. It's usually translated life. So what Paul is saying is that this, this is, this is, when we have unity of mind, it means that it includes our heart, our emotions, and our will. We are to be united as believers in our thinking and in our feeling and in our choosing. Having unity of mind entails how we determine what is most valuable and what is most important. It includes how we respond and react to the world around us in light of the gospel we receive. Now Paul will explain this later in Philippians by saying, you have the mind of Christ. That the more you walk with Jesus, the more you avail yourself to his word, the more you allow God's spirit to guide you, and the more you're conformed to the image of Jesus by the power of the spirit and of his word, the more our values are formed and our minds become more like Jesus. If you remember Philippi, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12, he says, Therefore, in light of God's mercies, I urge you to be, not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we all have to be united in mind. This means as believers, we, sh- we have a shared, united purpose of loving Jesus together. We have united values of what matters most. And for us, that means we love God, we love people, and we make disciples. We have to be united in purpose and of the same mind, but there's something else that he says. And if we're going to have this kind, if we're going to be live as citizens worthy of the, of, of the gospel, we have to be united in spirit, united in mind, and then we have to have unity of action. Notice what he says there in verse 27. He says this, he says, having one mind, striving side by side for the, uh, sorry, stri- striving side by side. I'm going to stop there. This is unity of action. The word striving, it means struggling, toiling together towards the same goal. It's an action word, striving, struggling. Now here, the only the illustration that comes to mind to me is of Olympic rowers. I don't know if you watched the Summer Olympics in Tokyo, but I'm always fascinated by the rowers, if you, especially the, the eight, when, when you have the eight guys or eight ladies in their boats, and you have the coxswain, which is the person that's standing at the front, steer, uh, facing all the rowers, steering the boat, yelling at them when to row. 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 The point is that they are all striving and struggling in the same direction. They are all rowing together towards the same purpose. The boat that gets there the fastest are those that row the best together. I thought it was fascinating that they reach a top speed of 18 miles per hour. I can't run that fast, and they can row a boat faster than that. But the point is that when we are in the boat, Paul is basically like the coxswain here. That's the name of that person. He's basically telling us to row together side by side, no spectators, no passengers, no consumers. We are doers and givers striving and toiling together. It is not enough, hear me, it is not enough to merely assent and give your approval. That's what happens a lot of times in the churches. They go, oh yeah, we're for missions, we'll give some money to that. Oh yeah, we're for helping people, we're for that. Oh yeah, we'll do that. We assent to the truth of it, but you don't come lockstep, arm in arm, and actually go together. 
It's not enough for me to simply tell my wife I love her. I have to show it. It's not enough for me just to assent to it, right? Hey, honey, I love you. It's okay, I love you. It's fine. Oh, yeah, I love Jesus. It's fine. Oh, yeah, I love the church. It's fine. Oh, yeah, I love, I love, I love that people come to Jesus. That's fine. It's unity of action. We are moving in the same direction, working shoulder to shoulder, striving side by side. Nobody in the back, all of us together in a row, striving for the gospel. But notice what we're striving towards here. It's not only unity of action, it's unity of, a unity of confession here, but it's unity of the faith. Look what he says there in verse 27. That we are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now pay attention to Paul's language here. It is for the faith of the gospel. Paul uses definite articles to drive home the point. We struggle and strive for the unity of the faith of the gospel. The faith once for all delivered to the saints according to Jude 3. Now unity of faith means this, if, you're, if you want to take notes. Number one, it means we share the same gospel of salvation by grace through faith. That's who we are. We all share the same gospel, the same, uh, the same gospel of salvation by grace through faith. Secondly, we share the same experience of repentance and faith. We have all turned from our sin and turned to Jesus, confessing Him as Lord. And third, we share the same missionary zeal for the progress of the gospel. This is us rowing in the same direction that our gospel is not just for us, it is for the nations. That is what we share together. Now listen, this isn't some lowest common denominator unity like we all love the UT Vols, because we don't. Or bottom line unity that just basically says where we all share the same room, we all share the same town, we all share the same middle school or high school. That's bottom line, lowest common denominator unity. That's not a unity that gets anything done to just go, well, we all live in Huntington. That's not enough. This is a deep-rooted, gospel-centered unity that causes us to be united in Jesus above our personal preferences or our race or our ethnicity, or our socioeconomic status, or our favorite football team. Paul said this, this is what Pastor Nick read earlier. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians again. There's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. That is unity of the faith. That is a high unity that trumps all other low unities. So we have to have unity of the faith if we're going to live as citizens of the kingdom. Because let me tell you, Christ's kingdom has one gospel. One gospel. One way to be reconciled to the Father. One road, the narrow road. One Lord, Christ Jesus. Unity of the faith. And then next, notice that it is unity in the face of opposition. Unity in the face of opposition. As you remember, in Philippi, the church began there out of incredible opposition as Paul is basically beaten and arrested and thrown into prison and then driven out of the city. Um, look at what it says there in verse 28. 
it says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, the word Paul uses for not frightened is the same word used for stampeding horses. I thought that was interesting. It's this uncontrollable stampede of horses that are out of control trying to run you over. And it's in the passive voice, which means that we are not to allow ourselves to be frightened by the stampeding intimidation of others. Now, this is a very apt, uh, very apt phrase when I look at our social media world that we live in, where if anyone says anything wrong, there will be a stampede of criticism to shut you down, cancel you, throw you off, and basically ruin your entire life. Paul anticipates this. It's the same thing that happened to him in Philippi because he cast out a demon from these people. They turn the whole city, the crowd loses their mind, and they all turn on Paul. And Paul says, you can't allow yourself to be frightened by that. You have to stand together and stand firm in the face of the opposition that's coming at you. That's the point, right? Listen to how Paul Listen to how Paul described what was happening to churches all over the Roman Empire. This isn't just happening in Philippi. This is happening in Corinth and in Thessalonica and in other places. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says that they faced a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. And in 1 Thessalonians, he says that they, they were in much affliction. He says there again in Thessalonians that your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. Every church Paul writes to is facing opposition because they're standing together for the name of Jesus. And what I want to remind you here is that citizenship worthy of the gospel is often costly. If you are going to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel, it will be costly. And our brothers and sisters around the world know that far better than we do. But we have to remember that, and we cannot be frightened by it. Listen, listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians about the, about the Philippians. He brings up Philippi in his letter to Thessalonica. He says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. Paul says we had boldness to share the gospel. So Paul and the Philippians stood together in the face of opposition for the advancement of the gospel. And that's what we have to do. I, I'm, 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 not a, I'm not a doomsday prophet. I'm not a naysayer. If you know me, I'm a very optimistic person. Sometimes overly optimistic, people would say. I try to see the best in everything. But at the same time, there might come a day in our, in our country here where we will face heavy persecution for following Jesus. And on that day, let me tell you, you, you will understand that the New Testament wasn't written in a time of comfort, but in a time of struggle and affliction. Why Paul says you cannot be frightened by anything. So we have to have unity in the face of opposition. And then finally, we have to have unity of assurance. Unity of assurance. Look at what he says there in verses 28 through the end. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Don't be frightened. He says instead, he says, this is a clear sign, a, a sure sign, an assurance. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, 
but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Listen to this. There are two basic assurances here. Two of them. First, the Philippians are to share the assurance together that their united perseverance and struggle will lead to others being convicted of the coming judgment. That when they stand in the face together, when they stand together shoulder to shoulder, that others will be convicted of the coming judgment and their need of Jesus. Paul assures them that when they stand firm together for Christ, unafraid, unmoved, others will recognize that they are dealing with people who know the truth. Now, I want to share you one of my favorite stories. It's called, this is a, the story of the, four, uh, of, the, of the 40 martyrs of Sebasti. It's a story from church history, and this is the story. It illustrates why standing firm shows people the truth. This is the story of the, of the 40 martyrs of Sebasti. It says, after 316 A.D., the emperor Lucinius decreed a persecution of Christians in the East. He threatened death if they failed to renounce their faith. In 320, 40 young Christian Roman soldiers refused to sacrifice to idols and were tried before the tribunal at Sebasti. That's in Cappadocia, modern-day Turkey. The governor tried threats, bribery, and torture to persuade the young men, but they stood firm. He put the 40 in prison where it is said that Christ appeared and encouraged them to persevere. Incensed by the soldiers' obstinance, the governor ordered that they be stripped and left to die standing on a frozen lake. He arranged a fire and a warm bath on the shore to tempt them to apostatize and renounce Christ. All 40 signed a will drafted by St. Meletius, the youngest, that expressed their faith, unity, and courage. And this is supposedly what the will says. It says, when we, by God's grace... And the common prayers of all shall furnish the strife set before us and come to the rewards of the high calling. We desire that when this will of ours may be respected, for although we come from different localities, we have chosen one and the same resting place because we have set before ourselves one common strife for the prize. These things have seemed good to the Holy Spirit and have pleased us. Therefore, we... Brothers in Christ, beseech our honored parents and relatives to have no grief or distress, but to respect the decision of our brotherly fellowship and to consent heartily to our wishes so that you may receive from our communion, uh, from, from our common Father, the great recompense of obedience and of the sharing of our sufferings. Listen to what he says. We pray with our souls and with the divine spirit that we may all obtain the eternal good things of God and his kingdom now and forever. Amen. The story goes on to say, The young men did not wait to be stripped, but removed their clothes themselves. And together they prayed, Lord, we are 40 engaged in this contest. Grant that 40 may receive crowns, and that we may not fall short of that sacred number. After one night's ordeal, however, one young soldier caved, but died out of extreme heat in the bath. Losing his martyr's crown, 
But an off-duty guard, prompted by the martyr's courage, professed himself to be a Christian and took his place on the lake, thus preserving the number 40. After three days, the governor had the survivors' limbs broken and their bodies burned. Officials hoped that young Meletius would save himself, um, but his mother herself lifted him onto the wagon, not wanting him to lose his prize. The governor had the ashes of the 40 martyrs scattered into a river, but Christians secured some and they became relics, inspiring many through the Middle Ages. You see, them standing firm and standing together demonstrated to those out there that they knew the truth, that there was something more than this life to live for, and it was eternity. But there's a second assurance here. Notice that Paul says it's the assurance of salvation. He says, Paul says, not only will their standing firm together bring conviction to those who persecute them, it will bring assurance of your salvation, and that from God. It is God who has been at work in the Philippians, and it is God who has granted that they not only believe in Jesus, but they also suffer for His sake. Now pay attention here. Notice the language. It is God who gave them the gift of faith in Jesus. If you're a Christian here, it is because God gave that to you. God gives that as a gift, and it is also God who gave them the gift of persevering in persecution. God, Paul says that. It's, it's strange, right? Paul says, God not only gifted that you believe in Jesus, but that you also suffer for Him. That suffering for Jesus is also a gift. It brings a solid witness to those who are doing the persecuting, and it brings assurance of salvation to those who persevere. So here's the question. How do the Philippians know that salvation has come to them? Because they believed in Jesus. Second, because they are suffering for him. And I should notice lastly, it's the last thing I'll say. Notice that all of this is for the sake of Christ. See, Paul says it twice. He says, you suffer for his sake. This is for the sake of Jesus. We live as citizens worthy of the gospel for the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord. We stand together for the sake of Christ. We endure hardships for the sake of Christ. We strive together for the faith of the gospel for the sake of Christ. And let me end where I began. You cannot walk worthy of the gospel if you've never received it. If you've never come to Jesus by faith, repenting of your sin, calling Him Lord, then there is no chance that you can live worthy of the gospel because you have to be a part of God's kingdom and you have to experience the transforming power of God's grace that will cause you to desire to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, everything I've said, you have to come to Jesus first. Come to Jesus in repentance and faith. And then if you are a believer, pray, make this your prayer. Lord Jesus, help me walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which I've been called. I'm going to pray and then we'll have a time of invitation. Would you stand with me? Father, we ask that you would speak now to our hearts and you would draw near to us. We ask, Father, for that one that's here that does not know Jesus, that they would come to repentance and faith in Christ. Father, bless us today as we seek to live as citizens worthy of the gospel to which we have been called. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.